You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Dogecoin's eye-popping surge. Is it a GameStop moment for crypto? Plus, whatever happened to the bond vigilantes? For all this and more, I'm joined by Real Vision Managing Editor, Ed Harrison. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Jack. It's great to be back with you on Monday. It's been a while. It has been far too long, Ed. So let's get into it. I'm reading your piece today in Credit Writedowns. You're thinking about the bond vigilantes. Tell me about that. Yeah, I think that there's been a lot of misconceptions about how to think about rising interest rates in terms of who's dictating what. Uh, the way that I'm thinking about bond vigilantes is not as the way that James Carville used to think about it, you know, intimidating the Fed and policymakers, but really more that they're front running policy action. So when rates rise, what they what it really is a manifestation of is the people thinking that something's going to happen in the economy that's going to cause a central bank to raise their um, policy rates at some point in the future. And so when we see the long term interest rates go up uh, abruptly, usually what that means is, is, is that uh, the market collectively believes that there's going to be in the medium term a, uh, a need to raise interest rates relative to what they thought, say, you know, uh, 30 days ago or 60 days ago. So you're saying the, the old town wisdom was that bonds yields would rise. The reason that people would sell them is because they were worried that the government didn't have a stern hand on the till and that the finances would run out of control, the deficits would balloon. You're saying they're really just pricing in the future actions of the Federal Reserve. So there is kind of like a shadow instead of, you know, some some force that's really driving the action. Exactly. I mean, we saw this in particular during the great financial crisis when we saw countries like the UK, which isn't even a reserve currency for for most people, uh, where yields went down as the, their deficits went up. So this whole old paradigm the, uh, that you say, OK, these guys, they're going to be uh, printing money like mad and uh, and deficit spending out the yin yang. And therefore, we bond vigilantes need to uh, penalize them for that. That's really not what's happening. What's really happening with interest rates going up is, is that the uh, bond market collectively is reassessing the likelihood of future uh, policy rates. And when they see the potential for inflation or actually in a positive sense, they see the potential for real growth, then they see the scope for future policy action that will have rates going up. So, Ed, what have you seen over the past month where yields have actually fallen? They've broken, they've fallen into a stasis. Uh, from February and March, we had that tremendous surge that had everyone scratching their heads, really thinking, what is going on here? But since then, yields have calmed down. Uh, what do you think the bond vigilantes, if they don't have this power, what are they thinking now? 
So I think that uh, there are two things going on. One is about positioning, uh, and the second is about uh, fundamentals. So on a positioning uh, perspective, in the bond markets, I think this uh, long bond tr- or short bond trade was over was overcrowded, and uh, it was overdue for correction. And so when we moved up to the 177 level, uh, you know, we were really stretched. Uh, we 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 hit the 175 level, uh, which is I think uh, you know when you think of it from a technical perspective that if we had been able to break through that level and consolidate, then we could have potentially gone to the next level. But when we tried to hit that level on the 18th of March and again on the 30th, we weren't able to consolidate above that level, and so we backed off. And given the fact that you know we were overextended. I think that it made a lot of sense that uh, people they they covered their shorts and uh, and and so we're resting here and we're potentially going to move higher at some point later on. And the reason I say that potentially higher at some point later on is I don't really think that there's been a fundamental reassessment of what the likelihood of uh, interest rate hikes are. I do think that at the beginning of the year there was a fundamental reset. Where people said, "Wait a minute, you know this zero rate policy, maybe it's not going to stay in place as long as we think it will." Uh, we think that maybe, you know, in the year 2022, there's the potential that the Fed would start raising rates. Uh, let's start to, uh, you know, price that in. Let's let's front run that uh, that policy and uh, and send rates higher. And so that's when we saw the 10 year going up. Uh, from 90 basis points to eventually 177, it's backed off and it's now below 160. So I think that once we get through these uh, these pandemic affected numbers over the springtime, that we might be in a position to uh, move past the consolidation phase and then uh, uh, go up further with uh, you know towards the two percent level. Ed, can you break down for us? Uh, what the Fed, how the, how, what the relationship is between the Fed funds rate, which is the overnight rate for banks that the Federal Reserve essentially controls by by altering and switching the levels of, of reserves. What's the relationship between that on the absolute short end of the curve versus things like uh, TLT, things like long bonds, 20-year bonds, 30-year bonds? What's the relationship like that before? I know earlier, um, you know, prior to this interview, you were telling me about how basically a 30-year bond is basically just price in one year after the next year, after the next year, after the next year. So if the if so, explain that to me. And also, if um, if the market participants aren't really hiking in that real interest rate, is it tapers that they fear? You know, and it is not, it's not the real rate itself. So explain explain this for me. Demystify it, please. Okay. So uh, when you uh, and you've heard central bankers talk about it this way, I think Ben Ben Bernanke is most famous for talking about this way. He was saying that you can express any longer term interest rate as a collection of shorter term rates plus a term premium tacked on. And the term premium is basically a premium that you pay for, uh, you know, holding up your money for a longer period of time. You'd rather have a short term rate. So you know, the term premium is normally positive, And so that means that you normally have an upward sloping yield curve just alone because of the term premium. But in terms of the actual expression of long term rates in, in, in short rates, you could have like a three month rate uh, followed by the three month rate three months hence, followed by the three month rate 
six months hence, followed by the three-month rate nine months hence. And so you take a one-year rate, and it's really a collection of those three-month rates, the, the existing rate plus the three forward rate. So any long-term interest rate is really a collection of those shorter-term rates. And so when you see long-term interest rates moving up abruptly, usually what it's telling you is, is that the markets are anticipating uh, a relative change in uh, their collective thinking about uh, future policy rates. Okay, thank you. Uh, so, Ed, last week we saw an inflation print that was beat expectations just by a hair. I believe it's 2.6 year over year compared to 2.5. So that inflation story, you know, we didn't see runaway inflation that would really cause the Fed to say, hey, we, we need to control this right now. So you, you know, in your newsletter today, you write that it's not um, inflation that so much the Federal Reserve it would, would force their hand, but financial conditions. Can you explain that? Yeah, so I think that uh, we're. Let me give you the example with uh, Dogecoin. Okay, so Dogecoin is a cryptocurrency that was uh, that was created in order to make cryptocurrencies look bad. If, for lack of a better word, uh, it, it was a joke. Um, it, it's essentially inflationary. It's not. It's not deflationary. Uh, you know, it's not limited the way that other cryptocurrencies are. And so it has no real intrinsic value. Uh, it has no store of value. It, it can't be really used that often as a payment. Uh, it doesn't have any real value. But yet, um, Dogecoin, the collective market cap, is now a $40 billion, which is a lot. And it's a lot, especially when you think of it as a purely joke, speculative asset. And so what that suggests is, is that we've moved into a, a new era where people are going from assets that you can make a plausible uh, case for to purely speculative assets like Dogecoin. And those assets are getting bid up to uh, extraordinary levels. When uh, regulators see stuff like that, they realize that financial conditions are loose. And so when we go through this whole um, thinking about why is it that the Federal Reserve is going to actually raise interest rates, usually we talk about um, inflation and we talk about employment because that's their dual mandate. But they have a stealth third mandate, which is financial stability. And, and, and to the degree that financial stability is getting out of control because of excess speculation, they're going to want to tamp down on that. So I think that you know once we get through these next few months, these prints uh, that are related to the distorted uh, inflation prints of a year ago when we were in lockdown, then if we st we still get um, some inflationary prints, the Fed will have an excuse to start tapering asset purchases. They'll they'll have an excuse to start to tighten, and they'll be using inflation as the excuse. But really, in their in the back of their minds is this whole concept that financial conditions are getting out of control. We've already made it through to, uh, you know, half of the, the U.S. population by that time being vaccinated. And if we're still in, in sort of a speculative fervor, they're going to want to tighten conditions. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. 
Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com. Yeah, and to that point about Dogecoin, there are a lot of cryptocurrencies which have seen tremendous surges in prices, but you actually can justify them. Something like Uniswap, where you can do essentially everything you can on Coinbase in terms of trading in, trading out, with arguably much lower fees if you trade in size. Uh, you know, Coinbase trading at a $100 billion valuation, Uniswap at a fraction thereof. So that kind of makes sense. But with Dogecoin, it is very hard to justify that valuation. And in fact, you saw um, the founder of Cardano actually on his YouTube channel say the, say the exact same thing, saying Coinbase essentially, excuse me, excuse me, not Coinbase, saying Dogecoin has been a, I'm paraphrasing, but he said Dogecoin has been a blight on the crypto community since the beginning of crypto. People take it seriously, and it has no smart contracts. It has no development team. You know, if you have a problem where your coin isn't transferring, there's no one. There's no real number you can call. Um, and he's saying that, you know, if if, it, if this bubble gets bigger and it and pops, a lot of people are going to lose money. A lot of retail people are going to lose money, and that is going to call the feds to to hone in on the crypto world and regulate it, which will be. Uh, arguably a disaster for the crypto world. Again, I've, I've paraphrased his remarks. But Ed, my question to you is, is this a GameStop moment almost for crypto, where GameStop, you had this insane technical play where you, know, you had a security trading well above its intrinsic valuation, whatever it is you want to call it. And then you know, there was systemic risk. However, the S&P 500 you know, is, in the, is in the 4100s now, and you didn't, it didn't really cause intrinsic levels. So number one, is this a GameStop moment? And number two, even if it is a GameStop moment, the crypt can, the crypto world perhaps can it still survive? You know, not survive, but can it still thrive? Well, we know that uh, the equity world still thriving, even though GameStop is uh, the speculation there is still right. continues. I think that's an apropos uh, analogy in the sense that there are lots of companies that are that have very good um, technology. That you know the prospects are are, are positive for them. Uh, you can build a story around those those companies for the future. Certainly, you know Apple. Uh, you might be able to do that with Amazon as a result of their huge uh, market share and the likelihood that they're going to grow into that market share with ridiculous amounts of uh, cash flow. But when you m start moving to GameStop. Then you're starting to talk about a company that it, it's you know its its best days are behind it, and really you could start thinking about bankruptcy uh, more so than you could be thinking about you know ten, fifteen, twenty, twenty billion dollar valuations. But uh, that's exactly how you can think of Dogecoin in the same way. There are other cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, obviously, uh, Ethereum, which have use cases. Uh, which are much more robust. And so when the Fed see that kind of action, what they think to themselves is it's actually in our mandate. It's, it, it's our primary mandate to protect the financial system, to ma maintain uh, the integrity of the financial system. And so as a result, if we see speculative activity, then we need to tighten financial conditions to move against that. So I think that the Fed doesn't want to get blamed for allowing a speculative bubble to form. And if come June, July, we see 
you know, rampant speculation of the likes that we see now with Dogecoin, likely it's going to invite a response. At a minimum, it's going to invite a regulatory response, just like the gentleman you quoted said. You know, it could be something that not only hurts Dogecoin, but also hurts other cryptocurrencies as well. Right. And what gave me pause, Ed, is the fact that yesterday cryptocurrency prices plummeted. Bitcoin plummeted, Ethereum plummeted. I think at, at one time Ethereum was just flirting just above 2000 and it, it's established itself well above there over the past month or so. Um, but you know these, these very high quality coins were crashing. And at the same time, Do Dogecoin was surging. And it, what does that make you think of people moving out on the risk curve, let's say, where they're saying, hey, you know, I've made so all this money in Bitcoin and Ethereum, I'm gonna sell that and I'm gonna move into the where the real action is, Dogecoin. Right, exactly. And I think it was, uh, maybe it was um, William McChesney Martin, who was the Federal Reserve Chairman between 51 and 70, who talked about taking the punch bowl away just as the party got it, got started. And people might think that the Fed is not as, uh, you know, on point with that thinking and that they allow bubbles to, to express themselves. Certainly they did in the Greenspan era where he said, you know, uh, we're not going to st step against the bubbles. We're just going to clean up the mess. But I do think that there is a level of mania that the Fed is not willing to put up with. And when we start seeing things like Dogecoin, that's when you start to wonder what sort of regulatory, what sort of monetary policy response you're going to get as a result. Right. And Ed, I, I was going to mention oh, well, the Federal Reserve didn't really intervene during the GameStop thing, but that was in the traditional capital markets. If they're not going to intervene then, why would they ever intervene in Dogecoin? But then I was thinking, I think Doge Dogecoin now is at a market cap perhaps higher than GameStop ever traded, even at its peaks. Right. And, yeah. and you know, in the, in, in the interim, we've had a number of episodes um, with uh, uh, some hedge funds that have made you realize that there are market structure problems, that underneath there's a, there's a certain level of fragility. And so I think that the Fed is on alert that uh, there's a fragility inside the system and they want to uh, stop any sort of uh, systemic risk before it, it appears. Brilliant. Well, uh, Ed, now let's move on to a story that you and I had on our radar, which is just about the tremendous volume of cash that is sitting in uh, people's wallets. Uh, this is from the FT. In the U.S. alone, households have piled up more than $2 trillion in extra savings, according to an estimate from Moody's. That is before the giant transfers from President Joe Biden's $1.9 trillion stimulus kick in. Together, they are enough to potentially fuel a, quote, extended cons consumption splurge. Is that what you forecast, Ed? Yeah, you know, I think this is uh, very well integrated into the conversation that we were just having. So let's just say we're at the June-July time frame. Uh, we have very nice comps from, uh, from the last year, which is post-lockdown. Uh, we can get a sense of what the true level of inflation is, uh, at least over the medium term. And, you know, the majority of the U.S. adult population has been vaccinated. Plus, that means that you're going to have uh, some level of reopening. The question at that point then is, what does inflation look like? How speculative are the markets? And with all that pent up, uh, you know, savings, 
is it going to go and flood into the economy and perk the economy up? Is it going to potentially create overheating? That's the sort of the nexus that allows you to therefore uh, make policy as, at the Fed and other central banks. And that's when the Fed will start thinking, okay, I'm going to taper. Maybe I'll even give a timetable for uh, when we're going to start hiking rates. So things could change at that point in time. My view is that when you look, when you decompose who owns that excess savings, a lot of that excess savings is at the higher income brackets in the in the developed economies. So the people who have the highest marginal propensity to spend are not the ones who have that excess savings. So it's not entirely clear to me that that pent up uh, savings. It, uh, I, I want to say pent up demand is going to lead to pent up demand. So uh, the jury's still out, to be honest with you. Right. Uh, just to ex explain that. So uh, marginal propensity to spend, that is exactly what it sounds like. And, and if you are a millionaire or a decamillionaire and the you know, Amazon goes from 3000 to 3300 and you save all this extra money, that doesn't necessarily, let's say for every $100 that you save or you make or the, the rate by which your, your wealth increases, only a small fraction of that you're actually going to spend because you know you you already have a nice pad, you already have a refrigerator full of food. You kind of your your life is kind of set. You know, like how many sort of uh, Gucci jackets can you buy, so to speak? But if you're someone who's on the much lower end of the spectrum, you're going to be spending a lot of that money because you have you know n imminent needs that are not being met by your current cash flow. So for in terms of inflation and in terms of growth, it's much much better for people on the lower end to have cash. Than, than on the higher end. Ed, that actually makes me think of an interview that uh, airs tomorrow that I did with real estate developer Nick Hilaris, who's got a very nuanced view of quantitative easing. He actually calls it quantitative transmission, but basically how uh, quantitative easing, the purchase of assets by the Federal Reserve, has facilitated massive speculation in financial assets as well as in real estate. And the difference between financial assets and real estate is that that, that guy, let's say the, the decamillionaire who's got Amazon stock, if uh, he or she feels that, that they don't really have a huge marginal propensity to spend. However, if that happens in real estate and they buy a new house and they develop it, that does facilitate a lot of economic growth. There are workers who have to work on that house. They live in the assets, so they feel like they're wealthier, the wealth effect, so they're going to spend a lot more. So his thesis, Ed, is basically that housing inflation um, it has been hidden from, from the consumer price index, and that it is only going to increase, um, and that will have a spiral effect because of, of the wealth effect for, for those reasons. Yeah, very interesting. And you know th that would suggest that we're going to see an accelerated timetable in terms of the Fed's tightening, which means that uh, those people who are front-running uh, Fed policy action, they're right, and maybe we're going to get more front-running as uh, the year uh, progresses. When we look back to uh, 2018, it took the full year of front-running the Fed before it created uh, a financial uh, reaction. You know, people started talking about the end of the secular bull market in bonds in the in January, February timeframe. It wasn't until December of 2018, after four Fed rate hikes, that we got to um, you know people throwing in the towel and equities uh, falling out of bed. Maybe that's what 2021 looks like. That is, is that we still have a ways to go before people say, OK, um, 
we got to think about this a little bit differently. So I think that we have a pause for a little while. It's starting in that time frame in the middle of the year that uh, we're, we're going to get um, we're going to get the next rally in terms of uh, uh, speculation about what the Fed's going to do and also what the economy is going to look like. Uh, my final question for you, Ed, we're going to have to return to Doge, Dogecoin. So at the very peak of the mania in uh, early January of 2018, remember the peak of Bitcoin was uh, late 2017, but for those altcoins, it was early 2018. Dogecoin was at about a uh, dollar, excuse me, excuse me, not a dollar. It was about at, at one penny and, and 50. So point zero point zero one five. Uh, maybe a little above that because I was late on the chart. Now it's trading above 40 cents. So, Ed, you mentioned that 2018, a lot of people were talking about the end of the secular bull market and bonds. My question for you, Ed, is, are we at the uh, beginning of a secular bull market for Dogecoin? <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah, I think uh, the, the word on the street is people are targeting uh, $1. That's what people want. Uh, uh, so we're at like, 40 cents. I, I, I looked at it last time. I, I don't know. You might have mentioned 50 to me, uh, but I think I, last I saw was like 38, 39 cents. One dollar. That's where that's where they went ahead. And when it gets to that level, it will clearly be an asset class that's that's a lot bigger than GameStop. Uh, you know, I think that uh, $1 Dogecoin will invite some serious questions about, you know, speculative fervor in this market. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Absolutely. Well, Ed, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, thank you for coming on the daily briefing. Yeah, good to talk to you, Jack. Now I'll be speaking to Gary Broad, founder of Deep Knowledge Investing. He's got a few ideas on his mind about the economy as well as specific stocks that are on his radar. Gary, I understand you have two stocks that are on your radar. Tell me about the first stock, Innova International, which is a consumer lender. Why did that stock attract your attention? Sure, Jack. Thanks for having me on the show. Big fan. I appreciate it. Um, there are really two things that attracted us to Innova. The first is long-term, there's a huge amount of opportunity here. The company gave guidance last summer before they acquired on deck, um, basically guiding to $12 of earnings for 2024. And assuming the same very low multiple of earnings that the company's trading at right now, which is around six times, uh, you'd be looking at the stock doubling between now and two years from now, which would be a great return. We think if they can make that $12 of earnings, you'd end up with some multiple expansion and maybe make three to four times your money in a two-year period. Um, the other thing that you and I talked about before is from a consumer lending position, from where the consumer is, where the cycle is right now, we're at a kind of an interesting point. Great. And tell us about what the consumer position is. Many people thought that insolvency was looming large roughly a year ago. That really hasn't happened. And it's been very surprising how strong people have been in paying their loans. Um, how has that affected Nova's bottom line? Yeah, you've got it exactly right. Uh, if we go back 
12, 13 months ago, everybody was predicting all kinds of bankruptcies, consumer bankruptcies, small businesses, uh, real estate. And it turns out that a lot of that hasn't happened. And the, the U.S. consumer right now is really in better shape than they've been in in years and years. Now, part of that has been government stimulus funds, which have helped people. Part of that has been a lot of people have gone back to work. But we think more than anything else, for the last year, people haven't done the kinds of things that they've done previously. There's been very little going out to eat, almost no leisure travel. Um, people haven't been commuting. Um, all of the you know, nobody's going to sporting events or concerts. So basically, people have pretty much stayed home, watched TV, worked on their homes, and banked a lot of money. Uh, we saw a statistic recently that American FICO scores are at an all-time high. Gary, I'm looking at the uh, chart now of the earnings, the net income of Anova, and it is saying exactly that. In the third and fourth quarter, Anova earned, uh, it, it really set a record for its net income in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, moving on, though, there, the, another, another, the other stock that's on your radar, the net income story isn't quite there yet, and it has actually had a spot, very spotty record over the past decades. But you think that this stock is set for a turnaround. Can you tell us about Houghton Mifflin? Yeah. And by the way, you, you have it exactly right. Anova had an unusually good year because of the pandemic. Houghton Mifflin was the opposite. And the reason for that is because school districts would typically meet, get together and decide what textbooks they're going to buy. Um, for everybody listening, Houghton Mifflin makes textbooks. If you were educated in the United States, you've held one of their textbooks in your hands. And because school boards didn't get together and make purchase decisions, how Mifflin had a horrible year. Well, that, from our point of view, is fantastic. We love buying stocks that are down on temporary news. And uh, this situation won't last forever. The United States spends a lot of money on education, and people will start buying textbooks again. More than anything, the thing that we like is the company is undergoing two different transitions right now. The first is a transition to digital delivery. So if you remember back when you were in school, you would get a five or 10 pound textbook, your school district paid $200, $300 for that, and they'd reorder every five, six, seven years, something like that. Well, now these textbooks are being delivered directly to students' devices. So they're not printing them. You don't have to pay for shipping. You have a huge amount of margin expansion available. The second transition that the company is going through is a shift to licensing. So again, if you go back to the traditional model, these companies, sorry, the school districts would order every five to seven years and you would just buy boxes of textbooks. And now what, what they're doing is signing licensing deals where every year the students will get uh, electronically delivered to their devices the newest version of the textbook. And that will smooth the earnings out. It'll make the revenue more predictable and we think get the company a higher multiple. What's your outlook on this stock, let's say over the next year? Because a, a year ago, fear in the market was at its apogee and you could see the stock was trading in the low single digits. Now it's at uh, $7, $7 per share roughly, uh, well up from where it was at the, the depths of despair a year ago. What's your outlook on this going forward? How high do you think it could go and in what time horizon? That's, that's a great question. So we're looking at the company over a two to three year time horizon. And it's important to note that because the company hasn't completed its transition to a licensing model, um, you end up with 
a cycle, some big years, some small years. It, it depends. If states with large student populations like California, Texas, or Florida are ordering, you could have a great year. If it's smaller states ordering, you know, like Maine or North Dakota that have just a smaller number of students, um, then there isn't as much of a revenue possibility. Pre the set, before they sold the um, the book division, uh, not the textbook division, but they had a book publishing division. They published Lord of the Rings. Uh, we thought mid-cycle the company could earn somewhere in the neighborhood of a dollar of free cash flow. And now we think maybe there's another 15% upside to that. And you'd easily put a 10 multiple on that. We also think that in a good year, you could be looking at unlevered free cash flow margins in excess of 20%, which would be roughly double the level where they are right now. So to see a stock price in the $15, $16 range over the next two, three years wouldn't surprise us at all. Thanks for that, Gary. Moving on to the broader macro picture, I believe a little over a year ago, you published some, some research saying that COVID-19 would inflict serious damage to supply chains. It would force lockdowns, the, the shutdown of the economy, and you know, it really inflicts severe economic damage. Of course, you ended up being right about that. Since that, however, we have seen a remarkable recovery, not only in asset prices, but to some degree in the fundamental uh, you know, economic variables as well, such as uh, you know, growth in jobs, growth in wages, growth, growth in GDP, and the like. What is your outlook going forward, let's say, over the next year? I, I, we actually agree with you. Uh, there's a great recovery going on right now. Most people have gotten back to work. Um, the economy is recovering. You're seeing large increases in GDP. And the truth is, the, the states start to reopen economies. People are very eager to start spending again, going on vacation, um, going to concerts or other kinds of public events. Now, is all of that going to open up tomorrow? Of course not. And there are going to be fits and starts. There are going to be further viral outbreaks that will cause people to uh, rein things in. And even in states like Florida and Texas, where they're open, when you have outbreaks, people will be more concerned and they'll be less likely to go out to eat or do other kinds of group events. Um, we do think that everything is on the way to recovery, but that no one should expect it'll happen in a straight line. Phenomenal. Well, we'll have to leave it there, Gary, but thanks so much for coming on Real Vision, sharing your investment ideas, as well as your economic outlook. Where can people find you? Are you on Twitter? Uh, what's your website? Where, where can people find you? Thanks for asking. Uh, it's deepknowledgeinvesting.com. Uh, or they can look me up, Gary Brode, B-R-O-D-E, on LinkedIn. Um, either of those are the, would be the right way to reach us. Perfect. Thanks, Gary. Thank you. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.